This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, from now until March 23rd, the last day that I'll be on Think Again. I'm running this series that I'm calling Jason Plays Favorites. In listening back to today's episode with singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell, I was moved all over again by what she said about the myth of Orpheus. How Orpheus, who is in some ways like the original singer-songwriter, the original poet, you know, goes all the way down to Hades to rescue his lover, Eurydice, um, gets halfway back up and then looks back, which he's not supposed to do, and she's pulled back into Hades and he fails in his quest. Aeneas pointed out that he is a hero in spite of being a failure, that all over the world, theaters are named the Orpheum. He's a hero because he tried to do the impossible thing. We were talking about singer-songwriters, um, you know, and musicians and how, you know, sometimes when you have a favorite musician, you get disappointed at some point in their career. They put out an album that you don't love. And she she says that she likes to listen to the whole arc of, of a musician's career and realize that, you know, sometimes the muse speaks through them, sometimes she doesn't, um, but she finds beauty and takes heart in the fact that that they keep going. Again, um, dreaming the impossible dream and whether or not they always succeed, continuing to try. I also want to share this note from a Think Again listener about current events in Mexico. An unstoppable wave of violence has reached every single family in my country covering them in grief and despair. As a result, a feminist movement has gained unprecedented support among women coming from a mosaic of cultures, ethnicities, wealth, and political ideologies. In Mexico, 10 women and girls are killed every single day. Today, Mexico holds the first place in femicides in Latin America. As gender-based violence in Mexico escalates, authorities remain silent. As many as 98% of gender-related killings go unprosecuted, according to the United Nations. A wave of protests by women's rights activists is raising pressure on the government. Thousands of women around the country have called for a day-long national strike by women, March 9th, a day without women. No women in the streets, offices, schools, supermarkets, parks, stores, or public transportation, a day in which every single woman and girl is urged to disappear. However, the president shows indifference, arguing that the feminist movement is being manipulated by political adversaries. On Sunday, the first lady posted an image on Twitter supporting the hashtag Unidas in Nosotras, a day without us. A couple of hours later, she backed off, stating that a day with us was best. It has been made clear that the president does not support the protest and that he believes it is an act of defiance which is meant to destabilize his government. Mexican women are living under critical conditions, fighting for our rights and for our lives. Many companies and corporations have voiced their support for the strike. It is time for empathy, solidarity, and change. We will not be silent, we will not step back, and we will not ask for permission. As a renowned publicist says, dead 
You are not leftist or rightist, liberal or conservative, neoliberal or anti-liberal. Dead, you are not pro-government or anti-government. Dead, there is no party. Dead, there is no being. This is what the national strike is all about because the minimal condition to fight for equality is to be alive. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Among other things, music can be medicine. Like a vaccine, it sometimes works by giving your body a little taste of the disease. Other times, of course, you just want to dance, and James Brown might be just what you need. But the medicine songs I'm talking about are the ones that break your heart open, no matter how many times you hear them. And you want them to, because that's what it feels like to be alive. Nobody knows this better than my guest today, singer-songwriter Aeneas Mitchell. Like the centuries of blues and folk songs that echo through it, transubstantiated by her voice and guitar into something almost too beautiful to bear, her music is powerful medicine. Aeneas wrote all the songs, lyrics, and the book of the new Broadway musical Town, directed by Rachel Chavkin. It makes new again the ancient story of the singer-songwriter Orpheus and his lover Eurydice, who he follows all the way to hell and leads most of the way back. Welcome to Think Again, Anais. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. You've been living with this story for a long time, right? I mean, I was just listening to the song Hades and Persephone on your 2007 album, The Brightness. Did this start as just the myth spoke to you and then you wrote a song and then gradually this evolved into the musical? Yeah, it's it's been a super long road with this thing. And I had no idea that I'd still be working on it now. You know, that that song that you're talking about um, is still in the show and is now called How Long. Right. And it wasn't the first song I wrote for the show. It didn't come as a sort of standalone. Like the idea for the song cycle or the retelling of the story through song came kind of early on. And I was just getting going with a songwriter career. I was driving in my car like a ridiculous long distance between two gigs. And I I was thinking about my partner at home, who is my boyfriend, who now I'm married to. This is a long time ago. And mm. I, I was sort of hoping he would like wait for me <laughs> to do my sort of running around that I seemed to be needing to do in the songwriter world and that I would come back to him. And I remember these lines came into my head that went, wait for me, I'm coming in my garters and pearls, with what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? And there's just these, this like flash of inspiration, which doesn't, you know, those things, that's usually how a thing starts for me. But then the rest of it is just like hours, weeks, months, years of labor to try to bring it to fruition, you does know? Does it start with words usually, like bits of words, or does it start with fragments of melody sometimes? Or They both? usually, they come together, uh, the melody and the words, you know? 
There are、um, a lot of these, a lot of songs of yours that have these kind of like haunting melodic breaks in them. I don't, you know, like any way the wind blows has that sort of melody, which is it sounds to me like if the wind could sing, that's that's what it would sing. Oh, that's so、um, cool. Any way the wind blows. There's a bunch of them where I hear where there are these. They're in the realm of nursery rhyme, but so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I love that you say that. Like I, I mean, melodies are so strange because there's not that many notes in the scale. Do you know what I mean? There's not, there's not that many notes that could happen. Right, right, <laughs>、um, right. And right. it sort of feels like unless you have a sitar, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> right. You could get into some alternate <laughs> scales and stuff. But it's almost like it's enough. We have eleven notes, and it's enough. And for me, like the the melodic stuff is always really feels intuitive. And it feels like it's it comes out of the ground the way that folk music does, you know.、Mm. I like that you said nursery rhyme because I think there is this sort of hazy middle ground between nursery rhyme and folk song. And、um, like there's a there's a folk song I really love. This、uh, this called Green Rocky Road. It evolved over you know centuries with the langos, green green rocky road promenading green. Tell me who do you love? Tell me who do you love? And just that phrase. Promenading green is so beautiful and strange, and I think it actually came. I think originally, or at some point in its life, it used to become "You Ladies Green," and、mm. that ended up sounding like "Promenading Green." But that that always has sounded to me like a nursery rhyme, and I think there is something about nursery rhymes that feels like it's just intuitive. Like nobody wrote that; it just came out of the ground. And that's making me think also of fairy tales and the way that fairy tales originally were much darker than the way that we know them. And and there's also that there's also that in Greek myth a little bit, like that sort of openness and possibility of the nursery rhyme, but with this level of threat to it, which I think is very much. Present in in Hades Town, I think, and in your music generally. Oh, cool! Yeah, you know, <laughs> I、um, this is an aside, but、um, you might have to heavily edit this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going in all directions. But I have a five year old daughter,、mm. and、um, she's very interested in storytelling. Although she doesn't like conflict, and she's easily like scared by <laughs> bad guys and stuff.、Um, so it's a Problematic because there's a, you know you can't really get into a story without that moment coming. Right, right, right. But we were we, we were driving in the car recently and she was in the back seat and she goes, "Okay, guys," to me and my to, and my partner. She's like, "Let's like recap like various、um, fairy tales she'd heard," and she was like, "Let's do Cinderella." And so we we're like, "Okay." So we we told the story of Cinderella and then my husband was like. And did you know there was a previous version of that story in which the stepsister cuts off her toes to try to fit into the glass slipper? Silence from the car seat. You know, <laughs> just like it's so intense. You know, the、yeah. origins of those stories. I don't want to be sexist, but kind of count on the dad to do that.、I、yeah, yeah,、like. yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, I got you. I saw Hades Town、uh, on Saturday. It'll be several Saturdays ago by the time this is this show is released. And it's very beautiful, and I'm almost I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because there is so there's so much going on that is kind of beneath the level of language or above or around whatever. But 
It feels like, first of all, there's like many overlapping fragments of story and history and song, you know? I mean, I know that like at the core, it's, it's Orpheus and Eurydice, it's Hades and Persephone, but it feels like there's like a hundred, a thousand, you know, echoes of story going on in there. It's a very unusual piece for music theater, I think, because it is... Um Rachel Chavkin talks about it a lot as very delicate, like easily broken mm. in terms of the wrong set choice or the wrong costume can mess with it because it is a poem and not a prose piece. And it's right. like it exists in this, you know, Hades town is a place, but it's not based on a particular time and place. It's it's mythic. It takes inspiration from the Depression era, New Orleans, yeah, stuff like that, Orleans, Americana yeah. stuff. But it could be anywhere, and it's it's a very elemental story. And so I think a lot of times it just is very delicate how we stage it and how we present it. Um, I mean, what was it like for you writing for the stage in that way and trying to understand how the thing that you do translates into that. Totally. Yeah, so, okay, so I'm driving in my car, those yeah, lyrics yeah. came into my head, <laughs> and I was like, it seems like that's about the Eurydice myth. And so it came from this very mysterious place, and then I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to try to make a cycle of songs tell a story? Mm. Um, and I was living in Vermont at the time. I had some early artist friend collaborators, Michael Chorney, who's still one of our orchestrators, okay. and and an early director, Ben Matchstick, who came out of the bread and puppet kind of radical right. theater world in Vermont, and a bunch of friends of ours from different bands around Vermont. And we all sort of came together as a community to put on the show, this early version of the show. In Vermont. In Vermont, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was very, I mean, it was um, totally DIY, like just scraped it together, rehearsed for two weeks, you know, performed in town halls and music venues, a couple of like opera houses that are like these small opera houses that are in Vermont. And it was a much different version of the piece because it was, there was a lot less material. It was more abstract. There were a lot more sort of long interludes of just instrumental music and kind of visual things happening. So it was like more of a performance art piece that hadn't yet been given enough of a through line to be sort of a a play, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't I mean, know. Which, you, like, you I think to... your work still resists that. I think Town on Broadway still resists that. But we still have a sort of a thread of a clear story. I'd have to, like, ask someone who saw <laughs> it back then to, to know what they were getting from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think there was a lot of magic in that abstract version of it. And I think people just had to fill in a lot more blanks themselves. And so... Which can be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It depends. It's like what floats your boat, right? I mean, in terms of storytelling. And so we did that for two years, and then I wanted to make a recording of the music, and I started to work with Todd Sikafus, who's our other orchestrator, and these guest singers, Justin Vernon and Ani DeFranco. And I was on Righteous Babe Records at the time, and right. um, so Righteous Babe put out that studio record of the music. And, and that album was, again, another step forward in terms of there were more songs that had never been in the original stage production. And it felt very complete as an audio document. You know, it felt right. like this was a musical statement that we all felt like proud to stand behind. And I think still, again, people were filling in a lot of blanks in terms of the story. And and you're sort of game to do that on a record. So we toured with that music for a few years just as a concert. And then I wanted to see the piece staged again. And it took a while to figure out like how to do it, you know, who to work with. 
And I found Rachel Chavkin because I saw this show, The Great Comet of 1812. Did oh, you, right, right, do you know right. about this? I have not. I didn't. Well, like many New Yorkers, I see almost no shows because yeah. they're just too expensive. <laughs> totally. <but yeah. laughs> I'm with you. I know. I saw it um, when it was a cheap ticket, um, <laughs> when it was at Ars Nova, which is like a 50-seat theater, you know. And right. it was just this gigantic show, just in terms of its spirit, you know, spiritually gigantic. Mm. And there was a lot of people in it, but not as many as there ended up being on Broadway. And um, the writer of it is Dave Malloy, just for, so people know. Okay. And um, it felt so delightful from moment to moment. And I remember thinking, seeing it at Ars Nova, I was like, this belongs on Broadway. I don't know how that's going to happen, but that should happen. And it and it ended up happening. And and a big reason is is Rachel Chavkin, who's who is the director of that show and who mm. um, has a real talent for all of her instincts are kind of downtown, edgy, thrilling, delightful, political, downtown vibes. Right. But she also is just operating at such a high level in terms of production values that... Amplify the downtown into something yeah. that scales up to Broadway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Mm. So I've, I found Rachel through that show and I reached out to her and uh, started working with her about six years ago. And, we, and so there's been a whole era of developing the piece further mm. for the stage. So for me, coming from the music world and the songwriting world, I'm very sort of comfortable with the form of a three and a half minute song where you just are going to hang out in that space of a three, three and a half minute song. And right. you don't ask much more of the song than that it sort of distills and dilates the moment for you. So you just hang out in that space. And um, I think people that saw the version of Hades Town that we did off Broadway right. a few years ago, they were asked to be quite patient with the storytelling in terms of like, okay, here's this, you know, let's hang out in this song for three and a half minutes. And there may or may not be a change that takes place, an event, a revelation, right, right, <laughs> a decision, <right. laughs> A leads to B type of thing. And that is the sort of, the, that is what I think is required of storytelling on the stage is that you're sort of following the thread moment to moment with a character. And so, so it took a long time to figure out how to interweave that stuff with the songs that existed and without breaking what felt like the structural integrity of the music, you know? There's something not, not just really nice, but almost, I'd say, holy about the space of just like you and the guitar and the paper, you know? I bet you were delighted in what was able to happen with all those people coming in and adding their voices to it. On the other hand, I would think that would take some adjustment after being mostly uh, just writing your own songs. Probably like 80% being in a room with Rachel, designers, orchestrators, the actors is really life-giving and energizing because most of the time it's me in a room, you know, <laughs> and it's literally like right now where I work is this, it's like a closet. <laughs> it's like a drum. It's a place where like a drummer might practice in a band practice space okay. in Gowanus. Like there's no window. It's a concrete room. And um <laughs> It's me in like a space heater, you know, wow. just trying to write rhymes and and I'm I'm quite slow. So it's, you know, it's me there for like all day and maybe there's one good rhyme, which means two good lines that go together, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, that's a good day. And so it feels like there's a limit to what I can do. I mean, it's, it's exciting to have taken those songs and get to see them celebrated and dressed up, you know, yeah. and interpreted by these actors. And then 20%, the other 20% is like, oh my God, everyone has an opinion about right. this needs to get cut. 
this is this can't get cut. Are you ever surprised at the inner fascist that is like, this word goes here? If I feel strongly about a thing, I won't let it go. Uh-huh. I might let it go for a moment, and then I'll realize I need it back. Mm. And that that process has happened many times mm. in the over the course of years. And then there's also, I mean, I do feel I feel lucky that I I trust the people I'm working with. Right. Even I shouldn't say even, but <laughs> even our producers. You know, I think there there are different kinds of producers, and ours have been very art first and trusting of my instincts and Rachel's. And I val- I also value their input because they're they're talking to a lot of other people. There, there are notes from people. And there are things that I can't see because I've just been living with it for so long. Right. You know, for mm-hmm. me, it all makes perfect sense. But for someone else, they're like, wait, so Orpheus needs to have a ticket to go there? Or like, how, how did he get to <laughs> Hadestown without a ticket? <laughs> you know, right. there's like housekeeping, logistical things that I might not even notice that other people do notice. So right. it's a lot of push and pull with that stuff. What I like about what you do is that, you know, in the same way that you're doing with Hadestown, like on XOA, you go back to so many songs that are on earlier albums, but it doesn't feel like here comes Aeneas just kind of like gathering all her old songs. You don't feel uncomfortable inhabiting and coming back to and sort of like reaching into the older work, which feels like a very kind of anti-corporate, anti-product model, very different from the way the music industry typically works. Huh. Like you can dwell in these themes and, and they're just as alive as they they were initially, or you can develop it further. They mean different things after a certain amount of time goes by. This is the crazy thing about songs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Which sometimes... is a theme in Hadestown, by the way. I'm sorry, uh, I, I don't no, want to no. interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. That is a theme that comes up like very much at the end of Hadestown, where, you, where you're like, these are the old songs, but we're going to sing them anyway. We're going to keep singing them. Yeah. You know. Let's, yeah, let's... that's right. I didn't make that connection, but you're totally right. And I think, you know, sometimes going back to a song that I've left behind, I'm able to inhabit it in a more honest way than I might have when I was singing it every night, you know, mm. at a time in my life when I was singing it every night and it felt like a rote <laughs> thing. Right, right. like um, uh, what's that Paul Simon line, all my words come back to me and shades, shades of, of mediocrity. mediocrity right? <laughs> yeah, that's real. Oh, yeah. he's so good. Yeah. yeah. So that Axeway recording was made um, in Nashville with this producer, Gary Pachosa, who also recorded a um, album I made of traditional right, ballads right. with Jefferson Hamer and child ballads. Yeah. And he's so good. He and his engineers, Brandon Bell, worked on that, both records. They're so good at just capturing acoustic instruments and voices. It's really like, that's, I think, one of their superpowers. Um, what guitar are you playing on that? What, or is it several multiple? Playing, you know, I think I, I thought about switching them up and then I ended up, just for variety, and I ended up mostly playing the guitar that was my main guitar at the time, which was um, a Kalamazoo guitar. Right, You know right, those? Right. They're like the cheap, they were like the cheap Gibson. And they don't have a truss rod. They're very light. Yeah. And they have this very strange like sort of loud for their size sound. But it's such a warm, rich sound. Oh, that's cool. You know, I I came up 
listening to folk music and singer-songwriter culture, kind of like Boston, Cambridge scene, like right. Dar Williams and, you know, Ani DeFranco and you know, so many artists in, sort of in the 90s there where it was just... Um, I, yeah, it was, was this moment where like the music industry felt like it had discovered this concept of the singer-songwriter, yeah. which of course has existed forever. Yeah, that's so real. Since totally. Orpheus. <laughs> yeah. And I always... I never needed anything more than a, than than one person with a guitar. Like mm. I, you know, to hear someone, in a sense, it's almost like seeing a poet at a podium, right. right? It's like you're there for the words and the and the melodies, which are the emotional sort of counterpart of the words. Right. And I I never needed to hear it fleshed out more than that. That's funny because my. My partner plays bass, and I notice this with different musicians I play with. Like, he'll be listening to music, the same music I'm listening to, and he's listening to the bass line, you know? Right. And I'll have no right. idea what the bass is doing because I'm listening to the words and the melody. My wife hears my wife hears melody where I, like, she never hears words. Oh, yeah. And and I hear, the if I don't like the words, I can't. It becomes un, absolutely impossible. For yeah. Me. And yeah. I feel like maybe you're rare. Like, I feel like most people are listening to the music first, right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I remember having this feeling like when my heroes would start to get sort of successful, my singer-songwriter heroes would like start to get a little more money and then they could afford to have a band and then they'd be in the studio doing all kinds of shit with their, right, right. you know, with the production of the records. And I would be like... Oh, I miss it when it was just acoustic. And, it's like uh, that Bob Dylan moment where he alienated everybody at whatever festival that oh, was yeah, by yeah. playing electric Legendary guitar. Newport moment. Yeah. But it's funny because then, you know, once I started making records and did get like a little more money to make them with, I was like, great, let's get a band in here and let's work with producers and make it happen. And there is so much that can, I, I have, you know, utmost admiration and respect for instrumental players, arrangers, producers, and what can be created sonically on record. But when I made that XOA record, I was kind of like, I think I should just go back and play them like I would play them in my bedroom, you yeah. know, just to have that, just to have a document of that. It's so pure. I mean, literally, I am weeping half the time listening to that. Oh, I'm that's like, like awesome. Particularly that song, oh my God, you know, that, first of all, I thought it was Hebrew. You were speaking on it. What are? What is? What, what is it? Oh, Arabic. In yeah, fact, it's I, Iraqi dialect of Arabic. Okay, all right. So initially, I heard it, and I heard like dodi, and I heard I heard certain words that I recognized as Hebrew, but of course, those languages related. are closely related. Yeah. yeah. What is that song called again? Two kids. Yeah, two kids. I mean, God. Uh, yeah, every. I I can't get through that one without weeping. Oh man. Um, I feel that way now too. Like I. I <laughs> It's hard to play that one sometimes live, especially with the stuff that has been happening in Syria, because that song, just to go back into it, I wrote that when I was pretty young, and um, I studied abroad uh, in Egypt when I was in college, right. and so I was in Cairo, okay. and I... Um, I did some traveling around in the region, and my friend and I were in Syria, and we went to this little town called Deir Azur, um, which is close to the Iraqi border, and we checked into this hotel. It was like the cheapest hotel in the Lonely Planet guidebook of Syria. And wow. um, we got there, and there's this like, lovely man behind the counter, the proprietor of the hotel. And he saw that I had a guitar. And so he thought, like, we must be kindred spirits. And he said he was a poet, and he pulled out like these books, these chat books he had created mm. um, of poetry. And he started to like, read them to us. And we hadn't even checked into our hotel room yet. And I told him that I was working on this song 
about two children, an American child and an Iraqi child. And this was during the Iraq War. Right. And um, he said he would write me a verse for the Iraqi child in Iraqi dialect because he spoke that. And so he did actually write pages and pages of a poem that I could only use part of. Okay. But that's what that verse is. Okay, so that's his writing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And so I think about, I mean, I, I think about him and I think about Syria a lot when I sing that now, which I don't often. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Orpheus, you know, it's interesting, it's not an accident, it may not have been conscious on your part or whatever, but that, you know, he is also, in a sense, the original singer-songwriter figure that we have. And I find the sort of the central theme in Hadestown about sort of what music can do and what it can't do. And we have Hades kind of set up as what feels like almost the industrial structure of the world, the corporate structure, it feels like money, it feels like making a living as against poetry, art, you know, things that are, this thing that is harder to quantify, which is what you do and what you've been trying to do for all these years. Oh, there's like so many different ways I could go with that question. But yeah, I think, you know, one interesting thing is that the Orpheus character for sure has been the hardest one to write for this piece. And in fact, he has evolved a lot in just the last few months between London and Broadway. Okay. People right away were connecting with characters like Hades and Persephone and... Eurydice and the Fates, you know, Hermes, I think all of those characters are kind of jaded, you know, in their way. Right. They all are sort of like been there, seen that. There's like a ruined quality to them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, which right. we, it's like easy to identify with. And Persephone, I have to say in the production, who's, play, who's playing yeah, Persephone? Yeah, Amber Gray. She's extraordinary, she is. like carrying that sort of, that 
decadent, almost like Weimar Republic kind of passion, you yes. know, like, like we're all going to die. So let's party. Kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Orpheus character has always been, I think because in the original mythology, his main, you know, mythic qualities are that a, he does, he attempts the impossible thing, right? right. He does a thing no one has ever done, which is to go to the realm of the dead as a living person. Right. And he believes if he sings a beautiful song that maybe he can change the rules of the, of the world. And then at the end, you know, his downfall is that he, he begins to doubt, he loses faith. So right. his faith has felt like a mythic aspect of his character and and is very baked into a lot of his songs his um like the wedding song you know he's he's telling Eurydice that the right. the trees and the rivers and the birds are gonna provide for them you know which is um just a sort of an outlandish idea this idealism i mean a little bit like don quixote or something as well the as you said the impossible yes dream. Yeah. exactly and i think the way that that translated in previous iterations of the show was a sort of like a cockiness on uh. behalf of Orpheus. Not that I ever intended that, but it was sort of in the writing. Like the very first thing that comes out of his mouth to Eurydice is come home with me. Because <laughs> he's so, you know, he's like so confident. And and there's a way in which people, you couldn't get with him. You couldn't get behind that character. Got you. Too much felt, certainty, not enough yeah, ambiguity. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also in different versions of the show was more of like a soapbox political character. Like he had more moments where he was like indictment of the this, this system. It's still in there, but I do think that the way he's been painted for this production, and I say that because who knows, maybe there'll be another, <laughs> you know, another version for the tour or something. He's more of like a naive, there's a, that word naive is even used to describe him. He's an mm. artist who, who, um, can see the way the world could be, but he has a hard time living in the world that is, right. you know, which feels like very familiar to me. Then it's sort of an archetype of like the artist that can't get their clothes in the la in the washing machine or, you know, <laughs> but they can like write a poem, but they can't, you know, make breakfast or whatever. He's sort of dialed into a different frequency and you sort of love and hate those characters at the same time, right? Because you're like, get it together. And, but you're also like, but it's such a beautiful music you're making. It's hard to write the poet for the same reason it's hard to market the poet, which is that it's a sort of a hard thing, hard essence to put your finger on and you have to really get it right. I mean, I think you do. I think of mm. his songs and they are genuinely beautiful, but like oftentimes when people try to bring the poet, the artist, whatever into literature, like it just doesn't fly because it's like, you have to make a real poet. Yes, that's right. I know, I know. I know. And I would say that his kind of politics have become less soapboxy over the years and more more like he surprises himself with them. Do you know what I mean? Right. More like because he's a sort of an innocent who's suddenly thrust into the world of the underworld, which is violent and exploitative and the rules are the rules. Yeah. There's like a rude awakening for him that like oh this is how the world is you know it's more personal in a way it becomes like accidentally political exactly in a sense. yeah and i think that's part of the tragedy of then all these other people getting behind him like lead us out of here <laughs> and he is never you know cut out to do that well and that's that's what i was thinking about you know i was thinking about what it means to be an artist as well and to like you know particularly to be an artist in the economic reality of america at this time and like 
you know, that sense that you should keep faith in the thing that you're doing, that this is where your heart is. This is, the, you know, but then you have all these forces from outside telling you, we don't care. You right, know, right, it's right. real hard to make a living, you know, totally. It, it would be much easier to go do this or do that or the other thing. And so I saw that as a also kind of a metaphor for that struggle, him coming up out of hell and other characters are telling him, you have to act like, you know, you know, you have to kind of fake right. it till you make it. Yes. Yeah. And you never, you can't really blame Eurydice for leaving him, right? <laughs> like in Hades Town, you know, she, um, in the original myth, she's bitten by by a snake and she dies and goes to the underworld. So there's not a lot of agency there. But in this version of the story, she chooses to go to this essentially like a company town where she's going to trade. She's going to live a, a lifeless life, but she'll be she'll have security right. and safety and uh, sort of comfort from the elements. And she chooses that. And, you know, there's a one moment that has been problematic in the writing. It's been rewritten many times, but where Orpheus is working on his epic song, you know, he's trying to work out what's wrong with the world and how it's going to get fixed. And he just doesn't notice that the world around him has gotten so bad. In this case, the the fight between the king of industry and the queen of the natural world has right. created this supernatural storm, which is very frightening. And and essentially, it's Orpheus's like obliviousness to the real world that means that his girlfriend is like, I can't, I can't stay. I have to go. And that's where we get that line, you know, to the world that we dream of and the one we live in now. Now about that tension between trying to make something make something that is new and that is beautiful and that is impossible and at the same time to somehow somehow live in and accept what is and yeah. celebrate it. Yeah. As well. Yeah, and maybe like the impossibility of doing both things. I haven't thought too deeply. <laughs> I mean, I have, but I, you know, like in a way Orpheus's failure at the end. It's interesting that he is a hero for all of us. I and mean, he's like theaters all over the world named the Orphe Orpheum or right, whatever, right. even though he's not the hero who won. He has remained so important to us for all, for, for all time, even though he doesn't win at the end. He's not a hero like Odysseus who comes home or, you right. know, but it's because he tried the impossible thing right. that we revere him. And I guess it is, it does have to do with what you were talking about. Like what, what can we expect from artists? What can we expect from art and music? To what extent can those things change the world or not. And um, Billy Bragg started covering one of the songs from Hades Town several years ago, this song, Why We Build the Wall. Right. He's so awesome. I love Billy so much. Um, yeah, and, and to hear him sing that song was just like, made my <laughs> life, you know, it's a, he's really amazing. So he came to the premiere of the show in London and I had a good hang with him after and he was saying, he was talking about how he had often asked himself, could a song change the world? Could my songs change the world? Right, you know, right. And that at a certain point he had decided, no, they can't. But the audience members might. That the song could yeah. move someone in the audience and then that audience member could maybe go on to do something that would change the world. That it's not the art itself, but the sort of effect it might have on someone. When we look at the artists that we love the most, and I'm specifically thinking of music, it's very easy to fall into this trap of like, they did this good thing and this good thing, and then they did this not so good mm, thing, mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of not feeling them overall, right? Yeah. I think that's a sort of narrative trap we fall into. Like we're looking, we're expecting them to just be something or continue to be something or whatever that I think 
is probably something that as an artist you have to, to survive, have to at some point be like, fuck that. How can you live in that? You, you know? can't repeat yourself. And so you have to go some new direction and see where it leads. I love looking at the entire body of work of an artist who's been around for a long time. Right. You know, someone like Bruce Springsteen or Leonard Cohen or Lucinda Williams. I think of Ryan Adams also because he mm. just put out so many records and a lot of them I don't care for and then some of them are just so good. I love to think that someone could continue to come sort of in and out of contact with like the muse or or the mom the cultural moment, you know. Right. At different times in their life and that you could experience the breadth of their thing and love them for continuing to make the effort. I think that's probably the only way any artist can be is, as you say, coming into and out of contact with the muse. I don't, yeah. I don't think there is anything yeah, yeah. else. Like, yeah, I feel this way about live performing. You know, I, it's been a while. Like, I haven't been doing a lot of shows because I've been working on this thing for so long. Mm. But performing, you know, there's so many that goes on in the, your mind. And it's like, oh, God, do they like it? I don't know. Does is the sound weird, you know, right, right, it, right, like right. what's happening? Am I going to remember the next chord? You know, did I say something charming in between, before that song? <laughs> All that stuff. But then there's also sometimes that moment where, which I've witnessed in other performers and, I, and I've had the experience myself of like, oh my God, I'm just channeling this. Like I'm just standing here and the music is coming through me right. and I, and I can stand back and enjoy it along with the audience that, that, can happen. And there's a there's a thing like in um the Arab world when you know these whirling dervishes or like yeah, they're yeah, like yeah, really yeah. great performances them, yeah. like people go Allah like they'll say, you know, it's like that God is coming through in that moment. Right. And the powerful thing I think about seeing an artist is not that they come out there and they're perfect from moment one to moment to the end of the show. Like I'm not actually interested in perfection. Right. I love to see someone come out there and be awkward and do their thing and they clear their throat and it's out of tune and whatever. And then they come into their powers in a moment. They come into the powers and it's like, holy cow, that just happened. That that just happened in that vessel of that person. That's right. And then it goes away. And for me, like, even 20 seconds of that, if that happened in a show, if I felt like I came into the powers for 20 seconds, that is a good show. Like, that is worth it. I remember the first time I saw Ani DeFranco, like, oh, I, yeah. I was probably 25 or something. And, and she came out, and, like, I was shocked by how goofy and yeah. sort of fragile she yeah. acted, you know, like, to, to, but yeah. not, not in a bad way, but just, like, in a very playful and childlike way that I just what hadn't associated with her. Yeah. And then she started to play and man, I thought her guitar was going to explode, mm -hmm. you know, playing that song out of range or whatever, the, yes. all that like percussive finger picking. I was like, you know, and yeah, the God yeah. speaks through them. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I totally have had that experience with seeing her like, <laughs> I, you know, I've opened a bunch of stuff for her when I used to be on her label and, and just, right. She has that way of interacting. It's very, uh, it's very in the moment and it's different night to night. Like she, and she talk about like what sandwich she ate or whatever, you know, it's just these right, mundane right. things, but it's kind of delightful because she's just, and sometimes it's just like monosyllabic, you know, she's very, <laughs> it's very simple and um, not polished at all. And then she gets in the song and it's just like a hurricane coming out of her real and vulnerable and like little in a way and yeah. so freaking big at the yeah, same time yeah. it's just like yeah you do that too actually. yeah and it's nice <laughs> to see that in 
someone to what to witness it in a performer because it's like, oh, like I'm, and I'm not speaking about Ani here, but like other performers I've seen, it's like, oh yeah, I'm awkward and insecure and small and whatever, but then that could happen to me. That kind of power could come through. So then it's sort of about work ethic, to use a kind of ugly phrase, of, in terms of the courage or whatever it is to just keep doing it, keep getting up there, keep writing songs. I don't like work ethic because it's it sometimes feels like hammering oneself into, like it just feels like the opposite of art. But I mean, for you, like in terms of- We could of, talk about that for like- yeah, four hours. Uh, well, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do a couple minutes anyway. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah, I want to know what that, what that's like for you, because I, I know for myself, I, most of my visible career has been this kind of thing, talking, writing, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, there's another, there's a secret artist in me as well. And yeah, like, it's sort of tough to know what the right balance is between sort of letting the muse speak through one and sitting down to make the thing. Totally. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> like, I can tell you what my experience is. Uh, that's what is, I want to know about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about writing here because I, and I feel like I'm more sort of ambitious about writing than performing, or that's always yeah. felt like more yeah. like my identity or whatever. But I, I um, for me, like, oftentimes there's, there's like a, that flash of inspiration, like I was saying at the beginning of mm. our talk, and then so much time so much time that goes into trying to bring it like to fruition you know and obviously with this show it's been a dozen years I mean it's crazy it's crazy to think about but even like something as simple as a song years go by where I'm like I don't know what the second verse of that song is I can't (laughs) find it and I might bang my head against the wall about it for like months I mean it's a it's a really you can get in into the beating of the self up about I should go ahead and finish that totally and and I'm not sure if it's useful or not. I guess it at some level it's worked for me that, <laughs> you know, all I know is that sometimes it's inexplicably easy art, right? It's like inexplicably easy, but it can't always be like that. Right. And so how do you deal with the other times? They, I, I think, you know, I probably should lean towards more kind of space and perspective and like faith and patience and waiting. Like stepping away, like going for a yeah, walk, like listening yeah. to some other music, like whatever. But I, I, I will sit there. I will just sit there in the concrete cave, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking for the rhyme all day, and then leave. I mean, this is. I weird. love that. That's. I love that. That's what where where you're writing. Like I've been thinking recently about how we have all these sort of concept recording space albums where like the whole marketing of the album is like, I mean, even Justin Vernon, right? He was up in a cabin somewhere yeah. in the middle of nowhere, or yeah, right. Tom Waits rents a barn in, you know, Indiana or whatever, and mm-hmm. you're in a concrete box with no window <laughs> in yeah. Gowanus, which does yeah. not feel in, like it would Somehow necessarily Gowanus be. Somehow makes it worse, right? It's like... <laughs> Next to a super fun site, yeah, yeah like yeah. a super toxic waste site. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> One thing is that I do think collaboration helps. I do think that's a real thing mm-hmm. to not be alone in it. Although I, there's m- much of it, for me anyway, has been like I have to be alone. I have to be just lo- lonesome valley of right, it. Right. But also, I've had these like pretty powerful, uh, charmed experiences with with folk music, with like reinterpreting old songs. 
Okay, right, um, right, right. First of all, like working on, I guess Hades Town is connected because it is an interpretation of a, of a, of a really old story. But um, working on those ballads with Jefferson, and I'm doing this new project now with these two other players. One is Josh Kaufman, who's a guitarist and producer who um, works with Josh Ritter. Right. Really incredible player in mind. And and then also um, Eric D. Johnson, who's from the Fruit Bats, if you know that band. Yep, yep. So we've started this band is called Bonnie Light Horseman. Yeah, I couldn't find any of them. Is it like online? Is it nothing? Oh, yeah. Is we out? have an Instagram. Yeah. All we have is an Instagram okay. I was looking for, I was trying to listen. Yeah. yeah. We've made an album, but it's just not out yet. Okay. But hopefully okay. soon. Cool. Um, but we started working on these like very loose, mystical interpretations of really old folk music. Oh, cool. And that stuff feels, it. that has felt so weirdly easy to me. And the part of my brain that, like, I usually live in that cracks the whip is like, this can't be good. Like, it's too easy. You know, it should be right, hard. Right, right, Art right. has to be hard. <laughs> and um, But actually, I, I really love the music. I feel very proud of and excited about it. And, and part of it is the removal of the ego from the process yeah. because it's like it's not – it's not quite ours, like right. it is, but it's not. And right. it's these themes that have existed forever. And um, and it's a joy and a delight to rearrange them in ways that feel like they can speak emotionally today. That sounded like, <laughs> that sounded like a, I don't know, like a, like I was in the back room coming up with some kind of concept for like, right, right, you know, right, right, right. No, but I but meant it in an earnest way that, I, I mean, yeah. that it, the, those songs feel emotional. Like I, I feel them in my heart. It's not like a research project. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel them very alive and, and emotional. Um, I get that. So it's, yeah, it's sort of like a, it's a mechanism. All of these things, collaboration, whatever, it's a mechanism to kind of like get yourself out of your head and out of your damn self. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which can be very <laughs> paralyzing and perfectionist and that kind of stuff. And I think, I mean, to be in your own head. And can we also be that have way. like unhelpful myths, I think, of the artist, the, the, the lone artist or whatever that are in yeah. our head that are pressuring us to be somehow able to create worlds out of nothing. Yeah, yeah. Time. And and what's amazing about it is also <laughs> I feel like it's it's also a fallacy that you're coming up with that stuff yourself from scratch because right. we're not, you know? Right. It's like everything we have was given to us, you know? And the music we play and sing, the notes in the scale, even the words, the images, the stories we tell, they they have their reverberations of a thing that's been, you know, right. echoing for centuries. And it's like to claim them as our own is not even really legit. Maybe to go about writing as though you were just interpreting. There's something to that. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't achieved that Zen state yet, but I'm, but I, but I'm, well, I'll work on it like after. These yeah. things are helping though. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. The Bonnie Light Horseman thing was a very, it felt like the complete opposite of Haiti sound for me, which because nice. in Haiti sound it's like there's a whole bunch of people that are going to have notes about <laughs> any lyric choice I would make. Mm. There's a director, there's a dramaturg, there's producers, and they're all going to be like, well, does that advance the plot of this character in this moment? <laughs> right. You know, and uh, to remove that side, which I, and I also like, I, I've loved that process. I'm very like geeky and I like enjoyed that process in a crazy way, but to work on this thing with these guys. And we also, um, we went to Berlin to this residency that is put together by a bunch of people, but but mainly Justin Vernon and Aaron Dessner from the National. Okay. Um, it's called People, and cool. it's really like a 
It's an artist residency that is a week of just focus on making new work in collaboration with other people, and then a weekend of shows. And um, it includes like some artists that are quite well known, and then many who are not. But it feels like a totally like it's not about right. where people are at in their career or in, their, in terms of how known they are. It's, it's really like an about open just, space of possibility. Yes. Where, yeah. And it was really like transformative, life changing. It felt. And we recorded most of the album that we'll put out hopefully this year at that space. And and it was a very, we would just, we had this sort of the spine of these reinterpretations of this folk music. And we would just grab people out of the hall. People would be like walking by the staves or like uh, Andrew Bard from the Bar Brothers, the drummer. And we'd just be like, hey, do you want to, could you come and oh, cool. <laughs> just track this for three minutes? And they'd be like, yeah. And they come in, learn it, not even know it that well. And I felt like I really got for the first time that Bob Dylan thing about how it's better if people don't know the music that well in the studio. Do you know? Right. There's like a myth about that, that he would sort of not let people play it too many times because he didn't want them to know it that well. Right. So it would be fresh. Yeah. And I always felt like that that was weird and like I would like people to know it. But I, I do think there's a palpable sense of presence when people are still learning something. Right. And it's not set in stone in any way. Well, and just in, in general, that sort of space of discovery and possibility, yes. like I don't know why I'm obsessed with marketing, but it seems the opposite of the way that music is sold and presented to us. You know, it's like just, you know, on and on and on about this cool person, this cool person, look how cool, you know, coming out of here doing this, this, you know, it's like all about the individual. It's never about the play. It's never about the discovery. It's never about possibility. And, totally. and I think it's the enemy of art. This is really real. And I think <laughs> if you were to look at like the sort of mission statement of the people residency. By the way, there's a, there's a small version of it coming up in Brooklyn uh, at Pioneer Works if you're around. Cool, cool. Um, but uh, that's a big part of their mission statement is to create a space for art making that is not connected to how any of this art is going to get marketed. And it is, I think, probably been has been said before, but it's also about like process versus product, right? Right. Like in a way... You have to trust the process, and that means trust it, even if there might not be a product at the end. Right. <laughs> right? right. And if there ever will be marketing, leave it to the people who do the marketing. Totally. <laughs> totally. So what I thought might happen has indeed happened, which is that we, I've enjoyed this conversation so much that we've used all of our time oh. just talking. Okay. And so okay. the the surprise video format of our show that some audience members might be expecting is not going to happen. That's okay. It's, a, it's <laughs> like we were in the process and we just weren't like worried about what the product was going to be. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe the last thing I'll say is that in Town in the Broadway production, there's this moment, which I'm not going to describe because people should experience it. All I'll say is that it involves some lamps. Where I saw how music and stagecraft could come together to produce that, that kind of thing we were talking about, about like the God speaking through the work. I mean, something completely different that could not have existed from the music alone, but in the tension of like what was happening on the stage and the songs, there's no way to express it that doesn't sound stupid, but it was transcendent. Those swinging lamps, like I, and 
the other things that uh, I won't gave it talk away. about. Spoiler but alert. It, she said they were swinging. Oh, okay. yeah, they All did right. swing. Yeah. That's interesting because that was one of the very first things that Rachel said when I started to work on her on this piece with her. She had listened to the studio record, and she was like, can I just tell you a, a thing that came into my head? And she was like, and I hear that song, Wait For Me. Picture these these industrial lamps swinging out over the audience, and we've had the lamps for several productions. But there's a way in which they were never quite anatomically right until the Walter Kerr Theater. Like there's something about it. Is it about? So I was thinking you have to, I suppose, really work hard on making sure that the length of the ropes, you know, or the cords, and that the force with which the actors are pushing is right so that rhythmically it's like, because it's perfect. I mean, it swells perfectly. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sure there was some kind of meeting with like the scenic, the props people about Every like how line. heavy does the lamp have to be for it to, yeah, yeah. like a the, like, physics question from hell. Yeah. The, the like, world we dream of and the world we live in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but that is, I think it is one of the most thrilling visual moments of the show. And For sure. it's exciting that it's now connected to the real possibility that the character of Orpheus has magic and can change the world with his mm. music. You know, mm. the music like couldn't be simpler in terms of what he's singing, right. but its effect on the world is like seismic. I'm going to tell the audience, I keep wanting to call you Anais, but because that's how, like, you know how when you read, you learn a word through reading, I've known you so long. I've been listening to, you know, so many times to your songs, and you are Anais to me, but your name is actually Anais. It is, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm named for Anais, and, yeah, yeah. And, and in French it would be Anais. It's just my parents have messed with the pronunciation, and I, I'll never, <laughs> now, like, never live it down. I don't think I'll ever learn it the proper way. But it's Ana okay. Anais Mitchell, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And Hades Town opens the seventeenth of April. The seventeenth of April, which this show is actually scheduled to come on May fifth, I believe. So that will have been a week. But if you have any way of seeing it, even if you have to sneak into the theater, don't tell Anais's producers that I said that. <laughs> but uh, but go go go. And that's it for this episode of Jason Plays Favorites from Think Again. If you haven't already uh, and you'd like to know what's going on with me uh, in the future, please come to my website. That's jasongotts.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S, and sign up for my mailing list. I'll be back next week with another oldie and Grady from The Vaults.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.